Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madhvi Romani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madhvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? So this week, I was asked if I would like to go into an agency in Berlin and participate in a brainstorm because there was a camera crew coming into their workplace, and it kind of pissed me off because. I knew that the only reason they were asking me was for the visuals because I'm brown, and they wanted to show that they had a full and diverse workplace for the camera, which they do not. It's all white women there. They wanted to use me basically and not even pay me for it, so that they could make their company look good and advertise their company as a kind of culturally diverse, cool, inclusive space. While I just basically wasted my time as a freelancer and I charged by the hour, so I'm losing out. So obviously I said no because by this point I kind of know when I'm being used. And unless you're gonna truly support diversity and inclusion and use your power to elevate black women and women of color instead of using them to elevate yourself, I'm not interested. I was thinking about like what does this mean practically, and practically it means that if you really care about diversity, then you need to. Take action. You have to give away projects. You have to give away screen time, work to black people and people of color to level the playing field, and also maybe use your platform in a meaningful way to speak out against racial injustice. So it's not just about visuals. And、um, because of social media now, more and more, we're kind of living in this visual world. And I was thinking that this was really oppressive in itself because, like in this case, I'm just being seen and used for the color of my skin, but. There's nothing real to it. Like there's no real meaning or work or even self promotion or fee attached to it. So it's highly deceptive. This kind of deceptiveness really hinders the fight for racial justice and the fight for feminism. In fact, because black women and trans women and women from poorer countries are women too. A lot of people are presenting themselves on social media as being empowering to women, and they're using the right images and the right slogans, but. In fact, they're just covering up and making pretty a problem that is really serious.、Um, Rachel Cargill, who's really amazing, wrote this article in Harper's Bazaar, and she had this line which just said, "If there is not the intentional and action-based inclusion of women of color, then feminism is simply white supremacy in heels." And then along similar lines, here in Berlin, I think last week, Margarita Skorbisa, I think that's how you pronounce her name. She's from This Fair Force. And she posted a really good story on Instagram about mainstream feminism. And、um, mainstream feminism, or white feminism, is the feminism that advocates for women situated in white, Western, and privileged context. And the basic dynamic of mainstream feminism is to capitalize materially and culturally on the concept of women empowerment. And women empowerment is translated into the practices, businesses, and narratives. To push categories of women to use their privilege and reach to the desired status dictated by capitalist, white supremacist, and neoliberal paradigms. I know that's a bit complicated, but yeah. So in short, I've been thinking about tokenism, deceptiveness, and basically the problems of white feminism this week. I think that it's potentially becoming a little bit harder from the outside to detect white feminism because of social media. You are only seeing like a surface level, like with things through Instagram. If you see, you only see what the brand puts out. You can't see everyone who's behind it. 
So tokenism, which we were talking about, really comes into play here because, you know, they'll put people in their Instagram photos or they'll hire specific models just to appear diverse. And I think that specifically with the Black Lives Matter movement that's been happening, the, you know, new wave of protests, we've seen a lot of fashion brands fall into this where they've had an almost completely white feed and then as soon as like you know black lives matter became quote unquote trendy because you know it's trendy to be a social justice warrior they started posting pictures of people of color or black women or and there was actually someone tweeted something really funny where they said every fashion brand and then it had like a bunch of white emojis next to it it said march april may and then June. And then all of a sudden it was just like black emojis because it was like every fashion brand did that. And it sort of reminds me a little bit of what's been happening a lot with the queer community. It's like every time Pride Month rolls around, you can almost bet on it that every major corporation is going to suddenly have pride themed things and going to have rainbow flags everywhere. And it's like the second July hits, boom, gone. So yeah, it's a capitalistic society looking to take advantage of oppressed groups. I think white women are overly guilty of this. You have to remember that the majority of white women voted for Trump. And specifically, white feminism is overly complicit in this. But yeah, like you said, like white feminism isn't really interested in furthering women. It's interested in helping themselves. And there is a huge intersection between white supremacy and white feminism. Lori Penny has a really interesting video where she talks about this, and she refers to white feminism as Barbie feminism. And it's this idea that, oh, this is what the new feminist looks like. She's blonde, she's thin, she still fits into, like, feminine ideas, and she can do everything, but she never has a hair out of place, and she's, you know, never bigger than a size two. And how, well, that's a really disgusting view of feminism and what women should be. It's becoming easier to manipulate images and hide behind images on the internet. Another really nice phrase for that is Instagram ready feminism. I picked that up from, I think we discussed it very, very, very briefly in our pilot episode, this massive article in the New York Times about The Wing, which is a women's co-working space in New York. And I think they have some other branches, but it was really sold as being feminist and empowering to women. And then the New York Times did this massive expose of how, for example, the trans women, the black women, the women who worked there, the women from lower social statuses were really not treated well there at all. One of the former employees said, well, as long as everything looks Instagram ready, we're good. So it was all about an enticing visual presentation and wearing a cute outfit, kind of like you said, Barbie feminism. One of the interesting stories from this place was that because they paid hourly employees $16.50 in New York, and a lot of these employees had trouble being consistently approved of to get enough shifts in order to support themselves. And one of the employees snagged a tote bag that said ladies get paid from a wing event that was hosted by a group that fights for equal pay. But the person wrote, hey, I've been so broke that I haven't had money to even buy food. So it just shows exclusiveness and the commercialization and exploitation behind this kind of feminism. Anthony Mackie, who a lot of you will know from the Marvel Universe, in a podcast episode what he was pointing out was he was talking with the movie Black Panther, and he was saying that they made sure that everyone behind and in front of the camera 
was black, which like, that's amazing. He didn't have any problem with that. But he was saying that oftentimes the argument used when, you know, you have an all white crew or something is like, oh, the people aren't there. And he was like, no, well, clearly they are fucking there because you found them all for Black Panther. So the problem isn't is that we don't have enough black people who are interested in working in the film industry. You just don't want to hire them. And I feel like that sort of relates to this because a lot of times people will use that argument, right? They'll say, oh, but they're just, there aren't enough black women for us to hire. And like, well, that points to two problems. One, because we're not giving them the opportunities from a young age to even pursue these types of careers. And two, they are there. There's hardworking women. You just don't want to hire them, but you want to use them for your Instagram photos. This reminds me of this other phenomenon called blackfishing. I don't know if you've heard of it? Blackfishing is when white influencers will alter their appearance and appropriate black culture, often to a point where the viewer or the audience doesn't realize that they are not black. So there was this really big scandal surrounding a Swedish influencer called Emma Halber, where someone found a photo of her taken in high school. This was about two years ago, where she is very pale and she has long, dark brown, flowy hair. And people contrasted this with photos taken in present day from her Instagram, where she has very dark skin and has sort of very curly hair. And Emma has defended herself basically saying that they were taken in different seasons. I just tan naturally. I get very dark. In the summer, like I just tan a lot. But then she'll post these makeup videos where she does makeup tutorials and you can see her using foundation color that's three to four shades darker than her natural skin tone that you can see. Blackfishing leads to two major problems. Obviously, it's a form of modern day blackface and you shouldn't be doing that. But these women, white culture steals so much shit from black people. For example, the word cool, which is a word that like you can't, everyone says it. I can't imagine living in a world where people don't say cool. That is a term that we appropriated from black culture years and years and years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like not many people know that. So we're constantly stealing not just their language, their clothes, their music. And now Instagram influencers, you know, they've become the new entrepreneurs. It's a new way to market things. These women are presenting themselves to be black. Or if you look at a lot of the comments on a bunch of these videos, people were like, oh, I didn't even realize she was white. And she defends herself by saying, I never claimed that I wasn't white. And you're like, yeah, but if you look at your photos, you're clearly trying to send a different message with the way you look. White influencers are more likely to be hired than influencers of color. And even when influencers of color get hired, there's a pay gap there. So it's kind of shitty even more so when these white women who already take up a large majority of this space pretend to be black and take away even more space from black influencers. What you said about black fishing reminded me of very recently there was a big debate about Janine Cummings, who is an author who wrote a novel called American Dirt about a Mexican woman. She is not Mexican and just told this immigrant story. A lot of Latinx writers, community members said this relies on racist stereotypes and it was a bestseller. It's much harder for them to get published over, you know, white writers anyway. And now to tell these stories... A white woman is doing it. Like, why? Just leave that story to be more authentically and better told to people who know that community and know those stories and have the right to it. It's such arrogance. If you don't have an agency that 
is diverse and inclusive, then maybe be like, hey, there is another agency or there are these other people who could do this show instead and give away that work. Create space. It's up to all of us to create space for people who have more barriers to it. And I do it a lot in journalism. If I saw a story about black people in Berlin... I would first and foremost put it out to any black journalist in Berlin. I would not write that story. And especially black women have it hard, the hardest. There's a term by Moya Bailey, who's a queer black feminist, called misogynoir, and it's used to explain the intersection of racism and sexism that black women experience. On Instagram, there was a really good post explaining all the ways that this manifests, but some of the ways are, for example, that black girls are seen as more grown up than white girls. There are biases in the healthcare system. For example, in 2017, a study from Georgetown University found that adults viewed black girls as less innocent and more adult-like than white girls of the same age, especially between 5 and 14 years old. And when compared to white girls, black girls were perceived as needing less nurturing, less protection, less support, less culture, and being more independent, knowing more about adult topics, including sex. And adultification also leads to rape culture. More than 20% of black women are raped during their lifetime, which is a higher share than among women overall. And also, their rapists get less jail time than if the victim was white. And then, of course, we've got all of the stereotypes against black girls and black women. For example, the sassy black woman, angry black woman, the strong black woman, the Jezebel. And then there is this stereotype that black women exaggerate or they don't feel pain, which was established during slavery as black women got a lot of physical, sexual and emotional abuse while working on plantations, which was physically destroying work. And also medical professionals dismiss the black women's pain in the belief that black women have a higher threshold. And in the mid-19th century, the father of gynecology basically built his career on experimenting on black women's genitalia without anesthesia. And he did this because of the racist notion that black women do not feel pain. And he was free of moral, political and economic judgment. Even though most of gynecology is based on the research done on black women, black women still are treated worse and die more during childbirth. If you're really feminist and you really believe in empowering women, you need to empower all women and especially, especially black women in a very meaningful and active way if that is what you are selling as your fundamental value. Otherwise, it's Instagram-ready feminism. Yeah, we white people are not very good at not being the center of attention, which is where, you know, the white savior comes from. White people thinking they have to go to Africa or other countries and save everyone there. Like, I remember in our high school, they did that. You could go to Tanzania and build schools. And I'm going to admit at the time, I didn't really think about it. I didn't go, but I didn't think about it. But in hindsight, I was like, cool, so you're probably going to spend a lot more resources trying to make us white German kids feel comfortable and secure and provide us with housing and all that stuff, just so we can come with no expertise whatsoever and build a school. And it reminded me of Robin DiAngelo has written this book called White Fragility, which was a bestseller and top of all the book charts. And it beat out a bunch of books by people of color who were actually writing about race. And I was like, that's just... That's just the problem. Like, that's just... If you had to describe it with one image, it would be that, wouldn't it? Yeah, in her article for Harper's Bazaar, Rachel Cargill writes about the responses that you'll get if you call out 
white feminism. She actually goes into like, here are a few items in the toxic white feminism playbook. Number one is tone policing. So that when women of colour begin to cry out about their like frustration or pain or outrage, white women are just like, can you just say that a little bit nicer? Can you just be a bit nicer when you say that if you want to be respected and heard? And the other thing is spiritual bypassing, which she says is the easiest way for white women to skirt around the realities of racism, just to love and light it away. And when confronted with the ways that they've offended people from a marginalized groups with their words or actions, they immediately start to demand like unity and peace and all that kind of stuff and painting the other people that they've harmed as aggressive, mean or divisive. And then the other thing is, like you said, the white savior complex. So a lot of women insist that there's just no way they could be part of the problem. And instead of listening to what women of color are trying to express, they instead whip out the, this is all the good stuff we've done for black people in the past. And then the other thing, like you said, also is centering, which is according to Rachel Cargill, the most common of all. So white women get caught up in how they feel in the moment of black women expressing themselves that they completely vacuum the energy direction point of the conversation to themselves and their feelings. And they start to explain like why race is hard for them to talk about and what they think would be a better solution to the topic at hand and perhaps what women of color can do to make it more palatable. That reminds me of something that happened to a friend of mine in college, he was having a conversation around racism and just like call out culture or specifically this idea that if a white person says something racist, he's going to point it out to them with another fellow student of ours. And he said, oh, I don't like call out culture. I should add the student was white. He said to him, well, I don't like call out culture because it leads to people, you know, being embarrassed and feeling like they can't ask questions, and all these things. And he was just like, no, like I'm not I, the racism I deal with in my life is so shit. Like, you can stand to be uncomfortable for five minutes. I'm not gonna shield you because you feel bad. Yeah, the other day I was having a conversation with my friend about sexism because he asked a stupid question. He was like, can we just discuss this without you getting upset? Because if you get upset, then I just can't ask you questions and we can't have a discussion. And I was like, we can still have a discussion even though I'm upset. I can be upset and we can have a discussion at the same time time one does not exclude the other you're just gonna have to deal with it whenever i hear people talk about i mean i can only speak this sexism that i've experienced it always just feels like so exhausting to have to explain it over and over again like that's so much emotional labor that we're asking not just of women but women of color or just people of color to do and like yeah you do want to have discussions and obviously you want to encourage people to have conversations and ask questions and all of these things and then also i keep thinking just google it like there are so many articles or instagram accounts that deal with this topic that have provided the resources that have already done the work it's kind of unfair to ask the people in your life to constantly do all this work for you but of course, you don't want to discourage people from asking questions and having a discussion. It's a delicate balance. True. So while I was researching for this episode, I came across this BBC video about digital blackface. And then I also read Teen Vogue are so progressive. Damn Teen Vogue. Teen Vogue also has a really good, interesting article about this that we'll link about digital blackface. And I've heard the term digital blackface before, but I didn't really fully understand it until the Teen Vogue article. In the past... I thought that digital blackface was when people overuse GIFs or images of black people online. And I thought that it was about the way we, you know, misrepresent ourselves because you can be completely anonymous on the internet. Nobody needs to know who you are. So 
you know, how are they going to verify your identity? But the Teen Vogue article kind of went on to explain that digital blackface refers to the phenomenon that a lot of reaction gifs that exist on the internet are of black people and portray stereotypical ideas of who they are. So oftentimes it's like, the sassy black woman. You'll have like a gif of a sassy black woman. They have this example of a tweet by a woman named Megan McCain. I wonder if that's John McCain's daughter. It's a tweet where she says, someone explained to me the point of fat shaming Sean Spicer. Is it just to humiliate him even more or what is it? And underneath it's a gif of a black woman going so rude, so nasty. And I assume she's probably famous and I don't know who she is. And then underneath, like there's another one of, with a reaction gif of New York from Flavor of Love. I don't know if anyone remembers that show. Digital blackface basically means that overwhelmingly white people will use reaction gifs or videos or images of stereotypes associated with black people, specifically black women to voice their emotions, and they portray negative stereotypes. That's so interesting, because also it shows the perpetuation of these stereotypes and stuff is fully the effect of not having any or very few people in power in, you know, production, in Hollywood, in the big studios, black directors, black producers, black executive producers. And then, you know, you've got one character on the show who's black and that person's the strong black woman, for example. And then the GIF has created out that, so it's kind of a filter-down effect. We could see that in a recent scandal with Mani, the Italian fashion brand, who, in their response to Black Lives Matter, I guess, they decided to use a black photographer. That photographer was Edgar Azevedo, Brazilian photographer, really delighted to be working for Mani because it's hard as a black photographer to get work. So he was really excited when Mani came to him with the opportunity and the project would be part of a platform dedicated to new black creative talents. So that's kind of cool. So he did these photographs locally and he delivered the photos and then the campaign dropped. And when the campaign dropped, it was shocking. They showed black people on the beach with shackles nearby and it was just completely racist, completely harmful, reinforced racial stereotypes was really not what the photographer intended. But what happened was he took the photographs and then he sent them off to Mani and he was not included in the editing process at all. So it is also kind of a form of tokenism, like, oh, we're going to use a black photographer. He's just going to do his work locally. And then he's not involved anymore. We've used him. We can say we're diverse or whatever. And then a bunch of white people go ahead and boil his photos completely and he was kind of devastated by what they had done you know putting shackles and luxury products kind of near black people on a beach like it was totally inappropriate and also not only did they exploit him in this sense just to show that they were using a black photographer they also exploited him monetarily i mean all he got for this shoot for all these photographs for a massive a really expensive fashion brand was 1100 us dollars for a shoot with eight people, including models, and they gave him the, hey, it's a great opportunity kind of line. And then a little bit later, after the backlash, they offered him a little bit more of compensation, but that's still just 1,900 US dollars, which is, they didn't even send him a plane ticket, they didn't have their own production crew. As a black photographer, as Diet Prada has this entire story, and it's clear that he deserves the same play and inclusion in the process that any other photographer would have been afforded. I feel like this image stuff is completely, it's almost a step backwards. 
I recently just watched this short documentaries about this subculture in the Congo. And I'm really sorry for butchering this. It's French. It's called Les La Zappé. So they're often described as the dandies of the Congo. And these are just incredibly well-dressed individuals. And I highly recommend you all, all go read about them. But what really, really struck out to me about this short documentary was it was framed around this British photographer who had gone and done a photo series about them. And they were interviewing the photographer. And he was talking about them, explaining the subculture, talking about his new book and the exhibition that was coming along with this and all of these things. And I remember thinking, why don't we just talk to them? I'm sure they would really love to tell their story instead of filtering it through this British photographer. I hope that they're going to get some money from this because you are now getting all this media attention and money by using their images. You know he went to the Congo and took photos of them and now is getting massive press in the UK and in Europe. And that's so gross. Stop exploiting black people and people of color and using them in every which way for your benefit. Let's do better. And talking about let's do better. Here are our three things that you can do this week to be a better ally. One, don't rely on others to educate you. Like we mentioned in this podcast, if you have a question, Google it first before making others go through the emotional labor of explaining it to you. There are a ton of educational resources and articles readily available to help you learn. Also, if you're going to read a book on race, make sure that it's written by a person of color and not by a white person. Number two, realize it isn't about you. If a member of a marginalized community calls you out or voices their oppression, listen. Don't get defensive and don't take any critique personally. The problem is the system of white supremacy and not individual white people. Although, of course, sometimes that is also the case. Three, speak up for, but don't speak over, marginalized groups. In a work setting, if you notice you are in a room full of white people, Interrogate why that is, and take active steps to make a change. Make sure your colleagues of color are paid an equal wage, and if a project comes your way that isn't right for you, take the necessary steps to make sure it finds the right home. In a social setting, support your friends when needed. Never speak for them or over them. Listen to them and listen to what they need and how you can help in a non-invasive way. And that was episode 20. Thank you everyone for listening. And to celebrate episode 20, we're having a dinner party here next week in Berlin. And we're looking forward to just share a drink and some food with some of our listeners. We appreciate all of you. And we'll be back with some amazing topics that will be submitted by our dinner party guests for future episodes of the podcast. So hopefully we'll be coming back with some really interesting and juicy topics about things that people want more discussion about if you like this podcast please subscribe and share it with your friends and if you like you can share your internet obsession with us tweet us and follow us on instagram at the underscore misinformed or email us at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com you can also subscribe to our newsletter find the link via our instagram or our show notes we are an independent non-profit podcast if you would like to show us some love, you can give a one-off donation via SoundCloud or become a patron on patreon.com slash misinformed. Thanks for listening and until next week.